Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out why a new pilot project shows that a four-day work week may be beneficial to both employees and employers. With rising revenue and job satisfaction on one side and falling burnout and resignations on the other. We look at all the fuss surrounding that new Netflix documentary about Prince Harry and Meghan, a six-part series, and why it is both loved and loathed, particularly in Britain. We hear from the father of the late Ben Stelter about a new fund set up in memory of the six-year-old Edmonton Oilers superfan who passed away over the summer from cancer. But first, Canadian superstar Celine Dion has shared an emotional social media post about her recent diagnosis of a rare and incurable neurological disorder called stiff person syndrome. We speak to a woman who was diagnosed with SPS in 2016, a dentist, to find out more about the symptoms, the treatment, and why so little is known about the disorder. Oh, we played some Celine Dion coming into this because I, I imagine you may have seen today that the legendary Montreal-born singer has had to reschedule several European tour dates um, because she posted today to social media that she had been diagnosed with a rare neurological disorder called stiff person syndrome. Um, I had never heard of it, you know, and, and I work in this business. I'd never heard of it, to be frank. So she posted two videos, both in English and in French. Uh, she claimed the debilitating disease does not allow her to sing the way I'm used to. Here's what she had to say. Recently, have been diagnosed with a very rare neurological disorder called stiff person syndrome, which affects something like one in a million people. While we're still learning about this rare condition, we now know this is what's been causing all of the spasms that I've been having. Unfortunately, these spasms affect every aspect of my daily life, sometimes causing difficulties when I walk and not allowing me to use my vocal cords to sing the way I'm used to. It hurts me to tell you today that this means I won't be ready to restart my tour in Europe in February. A very emotional Celine Dion today, posting those videos to social media to explain, principally to explain why she couldn't go back out on tour, but far more than that, this diagnosis of uh, stiff person syndrome. Um, it's incurable. It causes progressive muscle rigidity as the name would suggest, and spasms, as she spoke about. There are fewer than 5,000 known cases of the syndrome in the U.S., as Celine Dion mentioned. It's very, very rare. Of course, there's been an outpouring of sympathy today from all corners for the 50-year-old Canadian, 54-year-old Canadian superstar. At Queen's Park in Toronto, the legislature, a children's choir usually sings Christmas carols this time of year. Today, they sang something else.
Yeah, uh, a nice tribute. And there were many today uh, paying tribute to Celine Dion. So what else do we know about this rare neurological disease? What is living with it like? How effective is treatment? Joining me now is, ta- is Dr. Tara Zier. She's founder and CEO of the Stiff Person Syndrome Research Foundation. She herself is one of those fewer than 5,000 known cases of the syndrome in the U.S., an SPS patient. Uh, Dr. Zier, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Ben. I'm happy to be here. So I think a lot of us, you know, being in Canada, obviously Celine Dion carries a lot of weight here. Um, and I think a lot of us were watching her announcement this morning with a lot of uh, emotion, but also with a lot of curiosity about about stiff person syndrome, because again, I gather it's very rare. Yes. Well, it's reported one to two per million, but the numbers are most likely higher than that because it takes on average seven years to diagnose. And it's often misdiagnosed with MS, Parkinson's disease, and psychological disorders. What was your reaction today to hearing um, someone of such high profile sort of reveal that this was this was what they had been diagnosed with? It was, uh, whew. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just burst into tears, honestly. Right. Just Kimberly with the foundation had reached out about a month ago because was you know we were aware that there was she was going through some health issues and kind of this diagnostic odyssey that a lot of people go through, especially with rare diseases. And, you know, at that time, I'm thinking that there's, you know, there's just no way it could be SBS. And, um, and then to find out and then listening to her message. Wow, that was, uh, you know, I, I don't know her. She seems like such a very sincere, authentic person. And I could just relate to her on so many levels. You know, she was talking about her children supporting her. And she talked about having to postpone performing. She, she kind of seemed like she was on the verge of tears. And I, there's a lot of grief when you can't sort of do things that you want to do and that are meaningful to you. And I was a dentist for 20 years before I developed the condition and had to stop practicing because of the condition. I, I did martial arts prior to that and couldn't do that anymore. So, you know, it's hard when you want to do things and then something's holding you back. So there's, you know, I just felt a lot of empathy for her she mentioned hope and, you know, she, she seems very positive. And, you know, I, I think that um, a lot of, you know, our community is talking and getting messages and um, we need hope. I think everybody needs hope and hope in a very active sense. And I just am so grateful that she's vulnerable and courageous to come forward and to use her beautiful voice to shine a light on this debilitating condition. I, it's, <laughs> this has been kind of overwhelming, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I watched and thinking and thought just how, how courageous it must be to be able to, first of all, how terrifying and tough it must be to admit it to yourself, to find out. And then the courage it takes you know, to tell if obviously she has a huge audience to tell, but even in everyone's case, even to tell your family and your loved ones, what's, what, what's happened. Yeah, I, it, it is. And I, it, it's hard, you know, for people to understand most, most people hadn't heard of the disease yeah. and the name doesn't do it justice. I mean, people aren't just stiff. They can experience muscle spasms so severe. They break bones, dislocate joints, result in life-threatening breathing problems. And I, you know, just I'm just hoping that, you know, her being as credible as she is, that this validates like this. Actually, people wake up now and they 
you know, understand the impact of this disease and the importance to decrease diagnosis time. And that this isn't as rare as people think. As I gather, when we look at at what she had been uh, reporting, she'd been having these awful spasms. I guess that's what tipped or not tipped, but that's why people in your community thought this could be what she's experiencing. Um, Do we know what causes it? No, um, there's... That's the part where the research is so critical as to really understand the pathophysiology or cause of the disease. It's considered neurological uh, with autoimmune features. Um, 70 to 80% of people have a certain antibody um, called GAD65, elevated levels, which helps aid in the diagnosis along with clinical symptoms. Um, There are other antibodies that are associated with the disease. That's where, you know, really being able to drive the research forward to help to identify the cause and to develop targeted treatments is just paramount. Next year, we'll be launching a patient contact registry, natural history studies to have a large pool of patients for researchers to study. Um, That's going to be critical for clinical trials to help support better treatments and a cure for the disease. I get the impression that that for, for many people with SPS, you feel like you've been wandering in the wilderness a bit. Uh, it, it strikes me that people just don't, when you, people don't know, then the research, the money isn't raised the same way. The research isn't done the same way. Is, the, is that is that accurate? Oh, it's very accurate. <laughs> Wandering in the wilderness with no food, no water, no air. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it took me three years to get diagnosed. I saw a total of 13 specialists, was in the ER nine times, lost 30 pounds in a month in, in March of 2017. You know, going from doctor to doctor to doctor, I could talk to you about like how important the team is, your doctor team. You know, it's really tough. That diagnostic odyssey can be extremely challenging, especially sometimes diseases like this can be invisible. With stiff person syndrome, you're going to see people with all different levels of disability and you will see people present differently. Like most People probably wouldn't realize I suffer from this to look at me, which even adds another layer of complexity to it, especially going through the diagnostic process. A lot of people can be labeled with anxiety, which is can be a component of the disease, but there's an underlying medical, uh, an underlying uh, disease process in addition to anxiety. So it, it, it is it is very challenging, you know, wandering through that jungle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I wanted you mentioned the word hope earlier, and it's an interest, always an interesting word, I, I guess, uh, Doctor Zier, because I can imagine how challenging those early days must be uh, when you. I suppose there's a relief in knowing, having some idea of, of finally having a diagnosis. But what happens after that? Yeah, I kind of look at it, uh, Ben, in like two phases. So there's pre-diagnosis. and that's has its own set of challenges of uh, trying to figure out what it is. And then once you get the diagnosis, then then you're right. It's like, now what? What do you do? And I think, you know, for me, it was, okay, educate yourself about the condition. Who are the best doctors to treat it? And, you know, can I, how do, can I get into remission? You know, all of those things sort of cycle through my head in, in a very sort of um, almost like automated way. As far as, you know, what I've, what I've learned through this is um, we, we recently developed a medical advisory board with three of the experts in the, in the U.S. One of them also does research in, in Greece, and that's been amazing to have people come together. Uh, you know, the collaboration is key with rare diseases. 
so that you know that's been that's been critical. Um, the treatments are more focused on symptom management because they don't at this point understand the you know the exact cause of the disease. Um, it's it's looking at how do we manage symptoms. I wouldn't say that there it's really great management, and a lot of the medications and and immunotherapies available have side effects. And the medications, people can develop a tolerance to them, like uh, the class uh, benzodiazepines, Valium is a common drug used to treat it. it. It can lose effect after a certain amount of time where you have to increase the dose to get, you know, a similar uh, response. So that's that's tricky. And they also have cognitive side effects. And that that's sort of where the, the treatments are. So we're really looking forward to driving the research forward to get better treatments and, and hopefully a cure. Because of course there is no cure, just so that we're that we're clear. Not yet. <laughs> that's yeah. where the hope, and that's where it's active. You, you mentioned earlier that even the name is a bit of a misnomer. That it, it, it's sort of a name that must have been thought up many ages ago, but doesn't really describe the full range of things that 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 you endure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the name doesn't doesn't by any means demonstrate the severity of the disease. It originally was Moerschwoltmann before, um, and those were two uh, physicians who discovered the disease in the 50s, the Mayo Clinic. And then I, I don't know why they changed it, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I think they should have kept it that. But but yeah, people aren't just stiff. I mean, they, they develop, you know, they can have spasms so severe they break bones, dislocate joints, result in life-threatening breathing problems. Right. So, you know, when I started the foundation, it was like, wait, okay. Do do we change, focus on the name and change the name first, or do I start the foundation? And I thought that the most impact would be focusing on the foundation. I I realized the necessity there. I, you know, I was my former husband had passed away, which was a trigger for this disease. Um, and I had two kids, and you know, I, I had to have people live with me to help care for myself and my kids. And so I, I knew, like, I needed to take action at that point. Um, and that's when shortly thereafter uh, was on the news with Hopkins, like we need to raise awareness for this. And then we need to to raise money for research. Um, so that that was a big driver. Yeah. I mean, when you look forward now um, with with someone such as Celine Dion, when you look at her today presenting that, I guess part of the sympathy you feel, too, is just knowing what lies ahead. This is a really sounds like a really clearly sounds like a tough journey. Yeah, I think it's twofold. I think that I feel sympathy for where she is right now and what she has, I'm guessing, has gone through to this point. And that I'm sure she's experiencing some grief having to, you know, postpone doing what she loves to do and struggling with that piece. What lies ahead? It's hard to say. I would say I'm a realist realist with an optimistic spin. Mm -hmm. So, and I will tell you, that, you know, it's said to be progressive. I don't pay attention to it. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to do whatever I can do to heal. So I've looked at, at conventional medicine. I've looked at holistic means. I've looked at diet. I've looked at, you name it. I've looked at it, cold water, hot water, <laughs> everything out there. And I'm exploring those things because, uh, I mean, I'm doing trauma work. You know, there's, there's for me, an obvious emotional component to this. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I was probably in 2017, about 5%, meaning I couldn't take care of myself or my kids. I couldn't walk upstairs. I could barely walk. I would say I'm probably about 60% now, which means I have to plan every single thing I do. 
but um, even down to taking a shower. And it's like having to allocate that way and plan. Okay. You know, today's Monday on Wednesday, I have to do this. So I have to shower on Tuesday evening. And so, you know, everybody's different. And, and so, you know, I look at hope where, you know, I couldn't tolerate physical therapy the first two years. Now I'm doing it three days a week. I'm stronger. Does it hurt? Yes. You know, do I live with pain every day? Yes. But I'm grateful to wake up in the morning and I'm looking forward to continuing to do what I can to heal. I feel that and sense that about Celine and her message today. And so I just feel this connection with her that that just, just feels good. Dr. Zier, uh, thank you so much for shedding some light on this today. And uh, thank you for your time. Thanks a lot, Ben. I appreciate it. We often talk about the old grind, don't we? The old nine to five, five days a week, working for the weekend. We've been talking about it for a long time. But what if there was a different way? You know, we were, we read a lot these days specifically about uh, how work is really grinding people down. Resignations, absenteeism, they're all up. Spirits and satisfaction are down. Um, it's a problem that causes physical and mental health issues for employees, productivity and revenue problems for companies. But what if the answer to our work woes was a simple question of subtraction? In other words, a four-day work week instead of five. Without financial penalty, for employees, by the way. Now, that may seem like something employers would be very, very reluctant to do, right? Perhaps not if they saw the results of a series of trials going on, including with Canadian companies these days. Some are involved. Um, This started a while back. 33 companies took part in a large-scale study of a four-day work week. None, I understand, none has since returned to a five-day schedule. What they found was that revenue, productivity, and job satisfaction are on the rise. Burnout, turnover, and absenteeism are on the decline. Workers on a four-day schedule are even more inclined to work from the office than at home. So has, is this an idea whose time has come? Has the day arrived, so to speak, for a four-day work week? Well, listen, there's a lot of complexities around it. There are a lot of um, entrenched systems in place that all lean towards the five-day work week. But I think that, you know, the height of the pandemic, the lockdowns and so on taught us one thing is that work isn't quite what we can reimagine work. We can imagine work to be different than it is. And it happened very quickly and in some senses very, uh, well, obviously abruptly, but also quite um, shockingly fast for a lot of us when it came to remote work uh, back a few years ago now. But it did teach us that work can be done in a different environment, on different schedules, and thought about differently. So why not look at this one differently? Perhaps perhaps it's the answer, not for everyone, but for some. Joining me now with more on this is someone who knows all about this pilot project because she's helped leading it. She leads the research on it. Juliette Shore is an economist and sociologist at Boston College in Boston, and she joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. Pleasure to be here. So I, I suppose we should start with the basic premise behind all this, that the five-day work week in of itself um, isn't working so well for us. Uh, how so? We instituted a five-day work week in the United States in, in 1940. So first of all, it's, you know, it's, it's very longstanding. And since that time, there's been tremendous productivity growth. So 
that's the first thing. I mean, just thinking of it in, you know, very basic terms, we've had all this labor saving technical change, and yet we're not getting our labor saved. So, but why is that so important? I mean, maybe five days is just a good, you know, a good place to rest and there's nothing wrong with it. What is happening is that large numbers of people in the workforce are feeling high levels of stress and burnout, anxiety. They're having trouble managing the combination of work and family and work and life balance, as it's called. I think for many people, two days at the weekend is not enough. And it's a combination of the changing gender patterns in work. So more and more women who are full-time, long hours jobs, many of them have children or other caring responsibilities, more dual earner households, more single-headed households with children, and the stresses of the pandemic on top of it. And they've just really combined to make people feel like they need a break. Yeah, I I imagine this is probably a really good time to rethink some of this stuff, especially with kind of the shift in work patterns from um, from working in offices to remote work. We've seen how that can work, um, that maybe this is a good time to try to look at some at uh, changing things that have been around with us for so long. We forget that they that there was a time when they weren't. Absolutely. The pandemic really opened up possibilities. It opened them up for employers. One of the Actually, the first company who joined our trial, they provide health educational materials for healthcare companies. And they, in in June of 2021, their people were quitting in droves, a lot of resignations, and they needed to stop the bleeding. And the CEO just said, you know what, we're going to a four-day work week. And by August, they'd done it. And what he said to me was, With remote work, we realized we could trust our people about where they worked. And with the four-day week, we realized we can also trust them about how much time they work, that they were going to get their work done in the four days. And that's exactly what ended up happening. So the pandemic really opened the window for employers at the same time that it dramatically increased the demand for change from employees. And yet, and there is so much resistance to the notion of a four-day work week, some, as if somehow you were giving your employees a gift here, right? Not to say that it's not a well-deserved gift, and not to say that the employees aren't giving a gift back. But I think that's one of the reasons it's working so well, because the employers are giving five days of pay for four days' work, and that feels like a gift, because so many of employers have been trying to do the opposite, which is you know, reduce wages and cut headcount and, you know, squeeze people. I mean, we've had that going on in, in our economy for so long. And in return for the gift of the fifth day off, the employees are saying, yeah, I'm I'm willing to go along with this work reorganization and figuring out how I can do do everything in four days. And that's the, you know, it's an important part of the premise of the trials that we're running which is that the companies undergo a process of what we call work reorganization to get rid of the unproductive uh, cultures and practices and things that are happening so that the the companies figure out that they can they can be just as productive in 4 days as they are in 5 and employees willingness to do that is the gift they're giving back 
Yeah. So, so you started these trials. I gather there were uh, several dozen companies involved. What is, exactly does it entail? They get two months of onboarding in which they prepare to go to a four-day week schedule. And that's where they go through these uh, work reorganization exercises. And you know, not just exercises, they actually do it. They figure out what is it about our culture that's wasting time. For a lot of them, it's meetings, too many meetings, the meetings are too long, too many people go to them sort of rethinking work. Some some of the companies are really going down deep to kind of rethink everything they're doing and figure out what's bringing us value, what isn't. So they do that for two months and then they start the, the six-month trial. And my team researches what's happening. So we do assessments uh, before the trial starts. We have a, a long questionnaire for the employees at what we call baseline, and then we collect data from the companies. And then uh, we do a midpoint uh, survey for employees. And then we do uh, another survey at the end for the employees to see how things have changed. So we're not, we're, we're actually assessing where they were on day one with where they are at the end, rather than just saying, how did you like the trial or what happened to your stress? Uh, and for the companies, they're uploading data throughout the six months. You came up with some pretty interesting findings here that turned out the four-day work week uh, was quite a success. Yes, it, actually, beyond our wildest dreams, I think. We asked companies and employees to rate the experience at the end, and the companies rated it at a 9.0 on a 0 to 10 scale, and the employees a 9.1. So everybody's pretty happy. Company side, uh, we saw increases in revenue. That's our major sort of performance metric because we have a lot of small companies who don't keep a lot of detailed data. But we also asked about resignations, which went down, new hiring, which went up, um, absenteeism, which went down. On the employee side, many more metrics, and they all are really, really positive. So we found people's stress levels went down, anxiety went down, physical health improved, mental health improved, satisfaction levels with life, with time, exercise increased. Here's a couple of things that didn't change, which we didn't want to see change. People did not take on second jobs. So that was great. We asked how intense people's work was at the beginning, pace of work, intensity of work, we asked at the beginning because what we didn't want to see was people doing the work in four days just because they were sped up. No change in work intensity over the six months. When we asked them to look back and said, did your work intensity increase? There was, they did retrospectively say yes, but it didn't show up in the before and after data, which is interesting. They didn't feel more stressed by the work. Well, they were less stressed at right. work. Yeah. That's, I mean, so you look at it, I mean, at least in as far as these trials are concerned, so you have uh, profits are up, a revenue at least is up, um, employee satisfaction is up, productivity is up. So it feels like we really can do a better job uh, in four days than we do in five, at least according to what you found out, that we're actually more productive if we work those four and take the three to uh, to rest. That's what these companies found for the most part. We asked them to rate the impact of the trial on productivity and performance. And that went, that was rated at 7.7 for productivity and 7.6 
for performance. So they think that the workers are more productive. Now, we don't have actual measures of their productivity, but uh, the workers, we also ask the workers, how does your current workability compare to your lifetime best? And that went up from the beginning to the end of the trials. The one caveat I'll put out there is it is the case that these are companies who opted into a trial. So it's what we call a selection bias. But I think there are reasons why companies that you might think, well, there's no way you can do this, like healthcare. You can't speed those people up. You actually probably need to de-intensify their work, you know, slow them down. What's interesting to me is that if you take something like a burnout profession like healthcare, and if you gave people four days and you had them just doing four days worth of work, you weren't asking them to fit it all into five you would have a lot of cost savings on their health care, on their leaving the professions. And you've got, you've got a lot of uh, attrition and, and dropouts there. More and more companies, and we are getting healthcare companies now that are, are starting to opt in and, you know, interested in doing these kinds of trials. More and more, I think, in some of the burnout professions, the four-day week can work but not because they've got a lot of fat, just because they're on the other the, the other side of it. Uh, I call it the paradox of work intensity, like the least and most intense workplaces can benefit. Yeah, I, there are obviously barriers here, right? And one of them is attitudes. But um, what do you think still lies in the way of this becoming more common? One reason, I think, is that there are a lot of social costs that are born by society and governments um, and individuals and their families from overwork and excessive stress. And the companies aren't paying, paying that price. If they were, I think they would have moved here earlier. I mean, you think about a doctor who burns out the, the social costs of training that person or the social costs of caring for people who burn out and then, you know, need a lot of need health care because their job made them sick. So I think that's in a way the biggest barrier. Yeah, I suppose people who if if if, if companies are not bearing the cost of uh, of working people too hard, if society is in, in large, uh, then you're right, it, it probably doesn't make as much sense. Where to now then where to now with this uh, with these trials, they continue. We've got the results of the next trials coming in. The biggest trial started in June, uh, bigger than these first two trials put together, closer to uh, 50 companies. And we are just finishing up the final end of trial data collection. Uh, So February, we're going to be releasing another report. So stay tuned. I think we're going to have some really great results there too. Yeah. As a last word uh, to both employees and employers out there, uh, the four-day work week, you shouldn't close your, your mind to it, I would say. Yeah, try it. That They're called trials for a reason. It's, you know, in many ways, a low-risk way to, to make a change. Juliette Shore, thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, a lot of people were a little bleary-eyed at work this morning, specifically in Britain, if they got up a bit early. Uh, but in Canada, it had to be the middle of the night to see this new um, Netflix series called Harry and Meghan. You know who it's about, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, at least previously, I guess. Uh, the first three episodes dropped last night. It is a controversial one, of course. I created a media frenzy in Britain, if you can imagine. They were having like 
live blogs about it on the BBC even. This is all about Prince Harry, his wife, Meghan. Uh, it sticks to a familiar uh, script, one you may recognize from the Oprah interview and so on, about their estrangement from the royal family, uh, their deep dislike of the Brit- British media specifically, uh, uh, and specifically in there, the royal coverage, uh, the media that does the royal stuff. And, and then, of course, some more profound subjects like the societal racism they believe has fueled coverage of their relationship and racism within uh, the royal family itself, at least unconscious bias, as Harry puts it. Here's a snip. It's really hard to look back on it now and go, what on earth happened? You hear that? That is the sound of hearts breaking all around the world. She's becoming a royal rock star. And then everything changed. There's a hierarchy of the family. You know, there's leaking, but there's also planting of stories. There was a war against Meghan to suit other people's agendas. It's about hatred. It's about race. It's a dirty game. The pain and suffering of women marrying into this institution, this feeding frenzy. I realized they're never going to protect you. I was terrified. I didn't want history to repeat itself. knows the full truth we know the full truth a lot going on there this is of course the first um in what is a believed to be a hundred million dollar deal between the couple and netflix although the real figure was never uh disclosed so in this one the storytelling relies on interviews with the couple their friends experts on race and the media the series does not include dissenting voices it is not a documentary per se it's very much a one a narrative a story about uh, Harry and Meghan. Uh, There is no response from any of the media organizations mentioned. There's no involvement with other members of the royal family. The tabloids today in England, you can only imagine, although they come in for a huge amount of criticism, they were covering it wall to wall. The Sun called it the, the series. The quote, mega show, the Daily Mirror labeled it the royal bombshell. Here's a bit more. You were late. Mm-hmm. He kept texting when he was late. He's like, I'm in traffic. I'm so sorry. I'm in traffic. I'm so sorry. I was panicking. I was freaking out. I was like sweating. Again, I didn't know him. So I was like, oh, is, is this what he does? Got it. Like this I'm not doing. I'm not going to sit. <laughs> what was that supposed to mean? Like, like one of the guys who's so much of an ego that you're not going to, that you don't, that any girl would sit around and wait for a half hour for you. And I was just not interested in that and then when i walked in a hot so sweaty sweet. red ball of mess she's she like oh she's that's like, not oh, no not, that's not what you are so embarrassed and late so there are some lighter moments in it as well well someone who watched the whole thing i know because she live tweeted all of it is patricia treble she's a royal reporter based in toronto and she joins us now thank you for your time tonight and I not only watched all three episodes, I was actually up when they landed. And can I just say, please, like, nah. Netflix dropped them at midnight Pacific time, which is 3 a.m. my time. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to say I was at least smart enough that I had the coffee all ready to go. I just had to plug it in as I got up at 2.50 in the morning. Wow. <sighs> exactly. <laughs> was it worth it? I, I'm going to be honest. So, look. This is my job, right? Yes. This is what yes. I do. And I'm going to say, I'm so I'm going to I'm going to do 
two evaluations. So sure. for the ordinary person watching Netflix, sitting down wondering what they're going to do around the world, I'm going to say, if you want to see Harry and Meghan talk about their story from their point of view, it is their narrative. This is the piece. These are three of six episodes because there, there are there is video, there are personal photographs. I mean, jaw dropping stuff in that in those three in those three episodes. Stepping back, putting on my analytical journalist hat, I'm going to say there was not a lot new. Like you know, it was like a supersized Oprah interview, and we've already heard them say this. 2021 we've heard them say at the end of 2021 we've heard them say 2022 we've heard them say now say at the end of 2022 there wasn't a lot new but for a worldwide audience and they are going for a worldwide audience i think there's enough that people will be interested and it's very well done the photography the way it is cut it is very very well done yeah it looks very slick I yep. mean, clearly, it would have to be right. What is the format? Is it is it is it linear? How does it, how does it work over the three episodes? So this is it. It is not linear. It jumps backwards and forwards. They really do their story, and over the three years, you're kind of leading up, kinda, to the wedding. But it is jumping back and forward. So you've got them in Los Angeles. You've got them in New York last year. You've also got like a lot of childhood stuff. There are childhood photos of Harry, childhood photos of her. There is no straight chronological through line through this. I think it, it all makes sense. I mean, I was able to follow it, but this is what I do. They do put up years and stuff like that to kind of ground you. Really important because sometimes you're kind of, kind of looking at stuff and they're talking about things in, say, 2017. And I'm like, well, wait a second. What you're just showing is from 2016. So what are we talking about? That, I think, is a little bit um, where I, I start to get a little concerned. But overall, it's very good. It's interesting to see what stands out in it, at least what the media have been paying attention to. Mm -hmm. uh, it's certainly been very divisive in the UK, where people have either loved it or absolutely loathed it. Is, and you mentioned earlier, there really isn't much in there that we don't already already know, mm -hmm. right? So clearly a lot of focus on Harry and his and his relationship with the media, uh, yep. his, you know, and Megan's relationship with the media once she met Harry. I'm going to say their hatred of the media. That comes through in spades. They absolutely loathe the media. They loathe the royal correspondence of the, the uh, media organizations, although they really only focus on the newspapers. So they don't even... It's one of these things. It's the tabloids, it's right? Even exactly, tabloids, tabloids yeah. or even the, the the Times of London gets mm -hmm. gets it in there. But what is not in there is that they're the royal correspondents of all the broadcast media, the BBC, IT, ITN, Sky News. They don't talk about the royal correspondents for the news agencies, so Reuters, press associations, stuff like that. And that's kind of you know from my point of view, what what isn't there, what isn't said. Um, for instance, her divorce from her first husband. There's no first husband in this entire thing. There are no Mulroonies in this entire thing. And they were incredibly close for these people. And a lot of this, you know, is based in Toronto. Is there, you know, when the Mulroonies were really close friends for them. And what's also, but what's, what it comes through is really what they have been talking about for the whole time. Is that he wanted to protect his family in a way he couldn't as a child protect his mother. And he was going to do whatever That's the narrative, right? That's and the narrative. That's, I mean, we've seen this story before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of they. They said, they told me that. They said I couldn't do this. Or they, I'm thinking, and as I, I, I live tweeted it. And, I, and I, kept, I kept going back. I kept going, who's they? They don't actually say who they is, you know, the couple. Yeah. 
is is they the royal family? Is they the royal officials? Is they the media? We don't know. And part of that is, and I think there's almost a deliberateness. There is a vagueness to this. And we saw this in Oprah. We see this here. And there's digs. There's a few digs where Megan is clearly going after her sister-in-law, Kate. But again, there's a vagueness. There's one part, and I'm going to read it to you, mm-hmm. where she's talking about meeting them for the first time over dinner. She's in a ripped jeans and, t- and barefoot. Mm-hmm. And this is what mm-hmm. she said. She says, I'm a hugger. I didn't realize that was jarring for a lot of Brits. I guess I started to realize very quickly that the formality on the outside carries through on the inside. Now, if yeah. you if you read that through, you would think she tried to hug William and Kate, got immediately like the sense that that was well beyond the pale, and that they are an incredibly formal couple in private. She doesn't actually say that, though. She just says, I'm a hugger didn't realize that was jarring to a lot of Brits and talks about the, that are, there's some people are formal on the outside as carry it's carried through on the inside. So what they're doing is they're setting out their narrative. They're leaving, making it vague and having people, viewers fill in the gaps with what they believe they are saying. Us against the world. It's the oldest narrative on the Romeo and Juliet. It's the oldest narrative on earth, right? Or one of them. It's certainly in and, this case, and it is, very effective. And it is, and it is a royal narrative we've heard before, um, mm-hmm. because remember, 1936, Edward VIII, he's abdicating to be with the woman he loves. And they went off into exile. They went off into Europe, never to come back. And so is this more of the same? I don't know. And what's interesting is that now I'm kind of curious about, because all the big stuff is still to come, Four to six, episodes four to six, which are coming next Thursday, Mm-hmm. basically is from the wedding on. So it's dealing with them as working royals. It's dealing with them on the tours. They had a big tour in Australia, a big tour in, in Southern Africa. It's them fighting with, obviously, the royals about what their role was going to be within the royal family. It's them fighting about leaving the royal family. And, you know, they thought they could be half in, half out, and they couldn't. And it's all, you know, about money. It's about them um, being in North America versus the rest of the family. And, you know, so yeah. this is all to come. Patricia Treble is with us this half hour. We're talking about the new Netflix documentary about Meghan and Harry. Uh, much anticipated, much viewed, no doubt. First three of six episodes um, debuted, la- debuted last night. The next three come up next week. You know, I spent a, a fair amount of time in England covering the royal family. I mean, what, what's what's a bit rich about the they thing is that they, they meaning the royal family, rely heavily on the media for these things. I mean, Harry was only too happy to have the media everywhere when it came to promoting the Invictus Games, which is a noble cause, obviously. But yeah. this idea of the they, it's far more complicated than that. The paparazzi, for sure. Um, but it's interesting that they've they've set it up this way. Do they come across as sympathetic? Because I, the only thing that I thought watching the trailers was they're going to come across as really self-obsessed and not particularly bright. And I wonder how, how that, how that reflects in the whole, in the, in the whole thing. I think they do come across as sympathetic. I mean, I do think it's, it's very much just their narrative. Sometimes you're kind of a little bit in the weeds. You're like, okay, you know, you, you're living in palaces, you have police protection through all this and you're complaining about this. And sometimes it's like, uh, okay, you know, reality check. But at the same time, they keep going back to the fact it's a love story and it's a different royal love story from all others because of the issue of race. And that's the other through line through this. I mean, they're talking about the British Empire. They're talking about the slave trade. They're talking about 
the Commonwealth and you've got the racism within the racism that they experienced in the very beginning. I mean, the racism that Megan faced at the very beginning, especially at the very beginning of the, when their relationship went public was tidal wave, especially for anyone who's on social media, the tidal wave of vitriol that is directed at all women, the misogyny is staggering. And if you're a woman of color, that is simply amplified exponentially. So they're very, you know, they talk about this and it's an incredibly important issue. Um, it is, and, and not Britain. talked about, and not, and not yes. talked about in this kind of venue ever. No, and and th- and that's part of what they said. They said they said, look, you know, we need to talk about this. And one of the hopes was, and and there are experts who are also being interviewed in this documentary, and they're talking about how, you know, what a lot of people thought when she first entered the royal family, you know, when they were engaged and when they were first married, was that this was a way to simply broaden the appeal of the royal family because she's uh, there's a lot of people like suddenly I'm like her. She looks like me. She has the same hair as me. And there is an incredible appeal. And so when they went on these these tours, there was a huge interest. Um, they are also, they're young. They're incredibly attractive. She is very well-spoken. And Absolutely. He is, he is not as well-spoken. She is incredibly well-spoken. They were the hot thing in the, in the solar system. But as he said in one of the trailers, and I didn't hear it in the first three episodes, is she, as he says, in the royal family, there's a pecking order. Well, Yes, of course, there's a pecking order in the royal family. Mm-hmm. And clearly that rubbed at him. And so we might see that more in episodes four through six. And then there's also things like, there's times when Harry is, is talking and I'm, and I'm thinking, clearly the breakdown of communication between him and William, clearly it's there. And he had this phrase where he said, um, he's talking about Windsor men, and he said they had an urge to marry someone who would fit the mold as opposed to someone you are destined to be with. That's the difference between making decisions with your head or your heart. Yeah. They, I mean, what's interesting, I think, about this <laughs> is, is that they do really seem to have an axe to grind. They definitely want to get their opinions out. There is absolutely no question about that. And yet at the same time, it's also that we've heard a lot of this before. So I'm I got to be honest, if there's if there's one, if there's one set of people, one set of executives who might not be having a good Christmas, it's going to be the executives at, at uh, Penguin Random House because they paid a reported 20 million US for his memoirs. What is going to be said in the memoirs that is not in six episodes on Netflix? Yeah, I mean, I, I covered Harry for quite a bit, you know, during the some of the Afghanistan years, the scandals mm-hmm. when he came back and so on. The truth is he doesn't have a great story. I mean, he has a story to tell, but it's very hard mm-hmm. for it to be. Uh, Megan has a far more fascinating story in many ways. I mean, Harry's story is pretty, pretty much the prince, right? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I don't know. Outside yeah. of that, you know, and, and falling in love, which is great. But yeah, yeah I, I don't know. And, and raging against his family, which um, I, I wonder when the appeal of that wears off. Yeah. And I, I've got to wonder. I mean, I think I think there's going to be an enormous appeal for this series. But what happens next? What happens in two years? What project are they going to work on in two years and four years and stuff like that? Because remember, they have huge contracts for Netflix and and Spotify. Well, and they're they're tied into production, right? You you have to produce, right? It it is based on how well those those things do. These these are you know that's usually how production contracts go. So what is the next thing they're going to do in three years? I mean. They were members of the royal family. If you started their wedding to when they decided to go to Canada in October 2019, remember that six weeks that then became forever. 
Right. If you look at that, that was basically 17 months. I mean, so how long can you keep talking about 17 months? That time is, is lengthening, right? You know, they left in 2019. It's now 2022. What are they going to do? What is their next project in 2024, 2025? Are they going to still be talking about what happened in 2016, 2017? Yeah, you get the sense that this is this is the story. and uh, This is the one. Well, this is, I think this is certainly the story right now that Netflix and Spotify want them to, to talk about. I mean, Spotify in the podcast, Netflix certainly in this. I mean, this is, I mean, Netflix is, is very, you know, they want to make money off this, right? They, you know, there's a, I think there's a reason why we have so many personal videos, so many personal photographs of the family. I mean, there's even a, what looks like a screenshot of, of Harry Dad on one knee proposing. Um, and I kind of went, whoa, we would never normally even see this, certainly never royal. Um, but would we even see this? And forgive me, I'm not up on my celebrity TV, forgive me. But is this the sort of thing we would normally see like on a reality show? I don't know. I think this is even probably, I think a lot of that was far more personal than we would have seen. It's certainly the, um, certain, certainly the closest we've been to um, someone that close. I mean, you know, yeah. he's still still fairly up there in, in, the, yeah. in the line of succession. I mean, it's oh, yeah. you don't really get to see into that uh, that world that closely very often. Patricia Treble, I'll have to leave it at that. Thank you so much for your time. You're more than welcome. Well, this is certainly the time of year for giving. And my congratulations tonight to the whole team at Edmonton 630 Ched and to the people of that city for their generosity. The annual Santa's Day raised at least... $249,684 in support of 630 Ched's Santa Anonymous today. Edmontonians donating $112,000 worth of toys and around $137,000 in cash. Um, all day, 630 Ched was broadcasting live at Santa's Depot, raising money to ensure every child has a toy under the tree this Christmas. So again, my congratulations to them. And speaking of generosity and Edmonton, a new fund was announced today in memory of a very special kid. Perhaps no young fan in all of North American sport touched a team and a city quite the way Oilers superfan six-year-old Ben Stelter did. Uh, he passed away in August, if you remember, from an aggressive form of brain cancer that he'd been diagnosed with at age four, leaving the family, the team, the city to grieve. Again, he passed away on August the 9th. The team paid tribute to Ben ahead of their home opener back in October. Benjamin Bruce Stelter first captured the hearts of Oilers fans on March 24th of last season when he joined the Oilers on the ice as the game's Scotiabank skater. Ben was a lifelong Oilers fan but had been battling cancer after being diagnosed with glioblastoma in 2021. Ben instantly made a connection with the team and became one of the guys. Hockey fans across the world fell in love with Ben and the bravery he showed during his fight as he rallied the Oilers fans throughout the playoffs with his celebratory line, Play La Bamba, baby. On August 9th, our hearts were broken when he learned we learned of the passing of Ben. During this short time that he brought so much joy to the Edmonton Oilers players, staff, and fans, along with raising thousands of dollars for the Kids with Cancer Society in his name. At this time, we would ask you to please join us as we honor Ben his parents, Mike and Leah, the entire Stelter family, and all those who mourn the loss of this brave young man. That was back 
ahead of the Oilers' home opener, I believe, in October. A really glowing tribute. It some, sort of sums it up so well, doesn't it? But his legacy continues to grow through a number of charitable events and initiatives set up in his memory. And today came the announcement of a very special fund set up in his name to support the fight to end cancer. And with uh, an endorsement from a familiar name to hockey fans in Edmonton, series, uh, obviously, um, to Ben himself and to the rest of us, Connor McDavid. And lastly, I'm challenging all you hockey guys, uh, athletes of all sorts, uh, to donate. Uh, together, we can keep Ben's spirit alive uh, and all fight this awful disease together. Well, Mike Stelter, Ben's dad, joins us now from Edmonton. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. It sounds like it must have been a really special day. I mean, I, I imagine you think of these days as they approach and then it happens and you look back and think, oh, how was it today? It sounded great, to be honest. It was a good day. There was a, a mix of emotions. Emotions were flying high, um, but it was a, a really good day. We're really proud and really excited to launch the, the Ben Stelter Fund. I imagine this is a tough time of year all around, right? I thought of that today, too, that this announcement comes at a time when, you know, it must be difficult for the family, even among, even amid this announcement today. No, definitely. And, and Christmas was Ben's favorite time of year. Um, he loved, honestly, he loved Christmas more than anybody. Uh, he had his own decorations, so many decorations. And it's been tough, but we, we pulled everything out just because it wouldn't be the same without it. And we know he'd be disappointed in us if we if we didn't go all out yeah tell me a bit about what this fund is going to do the fund so it's, we have four different pillars and and one of the biggest things that we're excited about is ben got so many cool opportunities um and that was just so good to help sort of refresh and recharge him and us as a family as he is going through his fight but everything that took place with the oilers um, he got to go to Disneyland, just got some cool stuff, trips to the mountains that we got to take as a family. And that was so important. And we realized that there's so many families that don't have that opportunity, um, not able to do some of those things. And, and we wanted to be able to help them. Uh, so one of the first things that we're going to do as a fund um, is to create some magical experiences for some of these warriors going through the fight, um, just for them and their family, just to create some good memories, but just to sort of forget about life a little bit and and just sit back and and be able to enjoy those times and have some fun yeah uh, one of the other sorry go yeah. ahead no god i was just thinking you when looking at that i imagine that sometimes you must have thought what life might might have been like for ben without all these the things that had happened i mean we were all watching and, and cheering him on through it and i'm sure it, it brought great solace to him and to you too at the time oh for sure and i i think that really helped in his fight and helped keep him going and just energized like he was such a happy kid anyways but people forgot he was fighting for his life i think just because he couldn't wipe a smile off of his face he was just having so much fun all the time mike sir you're going to say what what pillar number two was yes yeah number two is um to help families with medical expenses that aren't covered or equipment um there's some equipment or specialty equipment that some patients need the for at home that's not covered by um, Alberta Health or special benefits. Uh, so we want to just help lessen that financial burden on those families just so they can focus on, on their kid and, and their fight rather than finances. Um, one of the third things that we're going to work on is research. We're going to have a, a chair dedicated to research to find a cure and at least well, hopefully find a cure, uh, but to uh, find better treatments for glioblastoma and other cancers. 
uh, glioblastoma is the brain cancer that Ben had. Um, the fourth pillar that we have is a, is a pretty cool and it's venture philanthropy. And that's going to be working on investing in other cancer treatments um, to make sure that we can stay financially stable as a, a foundation on our own. Yeah, that, that fourth pillar was an interesting one because it's not one you see often. Uh, what, what was the inspiration behind that? Uh, I, I have to give him all the credit, but it was Atif Mauji. Um, he's been right. so good and instrumental with this fund for getting it set up. Um, that's his specialty. That's what he specializes in. And as soon as we, we heard his idea on it, it was a, a definite yes. Um, just if we don't have to worry about fundraising all the time, that we can just focus on, on what we do and, and the good stuff that we do, um, it'll be so much better for all these families and, and uh, the fund ourselves. And of course, it, it, um, uh, Ashif was there, but also Connor McDavid too. I know they made a video together to sort of announce what they were donating, how to sort of get the funds started. That must have been, uh, must have been special to see as well. Oh, it was extremely special. We we joke around, but it's pretty. We're pretty serious about it too. As Ben made some of the coolest friends, um, and they're Ben's friends. It's not like they're our friends or people that we met there. These connections that Ben made, which are so special, uh, but they've been so good in helping us get going with everything, especially the fund. Uh, but just the generosity of of both of them is is unbelievable. I was reading other articles today. I mean, you know, I think like so many people, I followed a lot of the story, but didn't realize um, just how generous Ben was as a kid. Yeah, and that's part of why we want to keep it going with his legacy. Uh, he had such a big heart, and it was really cool. One thing at the Stollery is when kids go for needles or have to do blood work or something tough, um, at the end they have a little treasure chest. Uh, they can go in there and pick out a toy, pick out something cool, but smaller things in there. Um, but we'd be out and Ben would want to go buy things with his own money to put in the treasure chest just so kids could get cool things. Or sometimes he'd put something big in there um, just for a bit of a surprise for the next kid to try to make their day when they go in to get something. Um, he bought a basketball net for the kids with Cancer House and dropped it off um, just for some of the kids there to play with. Um, around Christmas time especially, he loved going out and going shopping to, to bring toys to Salvation Army uh, to donate just so other kids had stuff to open on Christmas. And that was huge. And, and we like doing stuff like that as a family. Um, but just him and his heart with it was so cool. Just like what five-year-old does stuff like that? We didn't tell him to do it or ask it. It was just his ideas. So we ran with it. And it was, it's pretty special. Yeah, for listeners who aren't at Edmonton, Stollery's is the kids' hospital, right? We were talking to a doctor from there the other night. That's remarkable, though. So he would sort of see even other children in his situation and think they could use this. 100%. He, uh, he, he cared more about other kids in the hospital than he cared about himself. And I remember after his second brain surgery, we were in the ICU. Um, he was doing all right, um, but he was far worse shaped than a kid in the room next to him. Um, and that kid got moved out of the ICU during the night. He was doing better. And Ben woke up in the morning and he was just upset. He's like, I hope that other boy's okay. And he kept asking questions and it was just, it shows his heart, um, just how much he cared about other people rather than himself. Uh, Mike, I was noticing today that this is one of many, there are many initiatives, many charitable initiatives out there uh, in Ben's honor. It must be, it must be um, heartwarming to some extent to see how much people continue to try to do good in his name. Absolutely. Um, it's mind-blowing to see the impact that Ben had 
and just how many people he touched. And, and you can really see it when people are setting something up or wanting to do something in his honor, whether it's like a hockey tournament or uh, they had an Oilers watch party for an early game last week or two weeks ago, and they called it Brunch for Ben. Um, and just different things like that are really heartwarming to, to see. At a big night, I saw the Hockey Fights Cancer Night as well in Edmonton. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really special. And the Oilers have been unbelievable to Ben this whole time. Um, but they've been really good to us as a family and has really stayed in close contact with us um, since Ben's passing as well. With the with the fun that was set up today, what next then? I mean, you, the announcement's been made. I know it's a lot of work. I mean, clearly you have other things to do as well. It must be uh, a labor of love, but also difficult too. It's challenging, I'm sure, to do all of this. It is, but it's it's one of the things that have gotten my wife and I out of bed in the morning. Uh, where life has been pretty tough since Ben has passed, we're we're obviously missing him a ton. Uh, but to do something in his honor or something with his name that he can be proud of and we can be proud of as a family um, has really kept us going. And it's it's one of the things that's easier to put put time and effort into. We uh, it's part of the healing process for us. It feels like it's it's doing us good. Yeah keeping busy and, and, and doing good in his, uh, in his name as well. I imagine you'll also be um, just the idea that other families such as yours will be able to benefit from some of this as well, to be able to go have those experiences will be a really, uh, will be a really profound thing to see happen. Absolutely. Uh, we wish there were no families that would have to go through that. Um, that would be the ideal situation, um, but it's not reality. If we can help even one family, uh, which I'm, I'm sure our reach will be much bigger than that. But even helping one family would mean the world. It would be so good and so heartwarming just to, to see the look on their faces. And Mike, a last word to you. Uh, what would you like listeners out there to know about the family, uh, about Ben's memory and about this new fund tonight? Uh, I'd just like to say thank you to everybody uh, from the bottom of our hearts, just for all of the love and support that we received this whole time. Uh, we never expected Ben to blow up and be this little star that he became. Um, but it was so cool and it's all the kind messages, everything like that means the world to us. Uh, so thank you for all of the love and support and, um, any love and support for the foundation or the Ben Stelter fund, uh, would mean the world to us as well. Um, on the, there's a website, it's benstelterfund.com. If anybody wants to go there, they can donate, they can set up, um, monthly donations or recurring donations. Uh, or if you're not able to donate, even just sharing the page, passing it on. Um, would mean the word, world to us just to help spread the message. Well, Mike Stelter, thank you so much for sharing that with us tonight. Um, and I wish you a happy holidays, despite all that's happened in the last six months. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show, Ben. 